She was known as the Graven Witch. Obsessed by the primeval current, countless sorcerers fell to her hand. The most dangerous mage in the entire history of Real Acaria's academy. It should not be forgotten that Glinstone's sorcery is the study of the stars and the life therein. Glintstone, to many, is just a source of sorcerous power, and yet to others it is an avenue of research that leads down a dangerous but extraordinary path. In today's lore video, I'm doing something a little different. Instead of looking at an event or a character, we instead will be examining an esoteric theme that is formed from a loose connection of different lore threads. Ultimately, what I wish to examine is the sorcery of Glintstone and the primeval current and, by extension, its connection to the stars and the void beyond. The primeval current is one of the great mysteries of the game, a nebulous concept that, despite its elusive nature, nonetheless manages to be a source of conflict. The primeval current is fascinating because its lore implications run much deeper than you may think. It tackles the very nature and gestation of the stars themselves, and it reveals to us the existence of the dark void from which stars hail. The stars themselves are a force that influence events in the lands between, and so we must examine the influence that they exert through fate. In my opinion, these are some of the most difficult concepts to grasp within the game, and it can be easy to get lost in the vague and incomprehensible pieces of lore on the subject. Yet I hope you are ready to open your minds to the void, my children of the stars, for I believe I will provide you with a plausible, and logical explanation of what this all actually means. So with that said, let us begin our exploration of the stars and the force of fate that they exude. Selen describes Glintstone's sorcery as the study of the stars, and so it behooves us to understand a little bit about the celestial bodies before we cleave deeper into the primeval current. In the lands between, the stars are intertwined with fate itself, and to fully understand what this means, let us first define what we mean by fate. For me, it means events that are predetermined by some outward force, and is generally something out with the individual's control. However, we can learn that in the world of Elden Ring, the fates can actually have a far more active role in determining one's actions. In the lands between, determining fate from the stars is linked to the real-world belief known as astrology. Well, what is astrology within the real world? Well, I find the following description from Scientific American to be an extremely concise one, which will help us as a baseline moving forward in understanding this practice within Elden Ring. The quote reads as follows, Astrology is generally defined as the belief that astronomical phenomena such as stars overhead, when you were born, or the fact that Mercury is in retrograde, have the power to influence daily events in our lives and our personality traits. So in a nutshell, even in the real world, astrology is the belief that the movements and positions of celestial bodies can have an effect on the actions that we take. Yet in Elden Ring this idea is even more potent as we will further determine later in this video. In the lands between, fate could be observed and determined through this practice of astrology, and we learn this from the astrologer robe, a armour set worn by one of the starting classes. This gives you an interesting backstory for one of your new characters. As the robe reads, Robe fashioned from supple cloth. Worn by those who look to the cosmos above, they read fate in the stars, and are said to be heirs of the glintstone sorcerers. But alas, the night sky no longer cradles fate. This cements the link between glintstone sorcery and astrology. Both are essentially the study of the stars. One observes the fate that is written in the stars, and the other taps into the primal source of the stars. However, it also mentions that fate is no longer part of the starry sky, but we will discuss that later down the line. Regardless, it suggests that astrology can tread the lines of fate by observing the movements and positions of the stars. And I just ask you to imagine the immense power that that could provide. Imagine if you could predict and see what happens next on your path. You could build your power base accordingly and react to something that is yet to happen. It is also suggested that if you follow the strands of fate, you can finally meet your destiny, and that to achieve your ultimate goals and ultimate destiny, you need to follow these lines of fate, or else you will not meet it. And this is suggested as something that happened to Renala via the stargazing heirloom, which reads, A talisman engraved with the legend of a queen. The young astrologer gazed at the night sky as she walked. She had always chased the stars every step of her journey. 
Then she met the full moon, and in time, the astrologer became a queen. So Renala herself was essentially an astrologer who followed the strands of fate in the stars and literally met her destiny, the moon, which we know from Renala's full moon's description would lead her to establish a dynasty and become the queen of the full moon. This is exactly the potential the Carrion royal family would see in astrology, no doubt encouraged by Renala's own destiny being achieved, a great destiny that it was important enough to the Carrions that they would devote resources and manpower. As the item description of the telescope reads, Astrology tool used by members of the Carrion royal family, a stolen part of a larger instrument. During the age of the Erd tree, Carrion astrology withered on the vine. The fate once writ in the night skies had been fettered by the Golden Order. So this tells us that the Carrion royal family once utilised large telescopic devices to practice astrology, and indeed we can see evidence of these types of astrological tools along the Raya Lucarian Academy. And they used these tools to determine their fate. And with the information we learn about astrologers and preceptors later, we get the picture that this was a major institution under Carrion patronage. And indeed, we later use Rani still treading her fates as left by the stars as how she achieves her destiny, so it is a practice that is carried on by the Carrion heiress herself. However, I want to look at another piece of lore that the telescope provides us, where it states that it essentially withered and died the practice of astrology that is during the time of the Erd Tree because the Golden Order fettered fate. This is of course a reference to Star Scourge Radan, a member of the Carrion royal family actually as well, Renala's own son, yet very much a man of the Golden Order. We learn of this event from none other than Selin, who we contact at Selvis's request when we are working for Rani. This of course cements the connection between stars and glintstone, as we are going to a glintstone expert for answers about the fate and the stars. She tells us the following. The stars alter the fate of the Carian royal family, and the fate of your mistress Rani. But long ago, General Radan challenged the swirling constellations, and in a crushing victory arrested their cycles. Now he is the force that repulses the stars. If General Radan were to die, the stars would resume their movement, and so too would Rani's destiny. So the fate of the Carrions in particular is linked to the stars, and through astrology, Carrions would have been able to read and follow their destiny, and follow their destiny to their conclusions. But without fate, they are unable to follow this destiny to their conclusions. So while Rodan is actually born of Carrion royalty, we know that he idolised Godfrey and therefore the Golden Lineage through Rodan's armour set, which reads, The Golden Lion is said to symbolise Godfrey, the Elden Lord, and his base region, Sarosh. From his youngest years, Rodan was naturally captivated by the Lord of the Battlefield. In my mind, it makes it patently clear that Rodan would have been loyal to Godfrey's legacy, i.e. the Erdtree Order, and this is in fact confirmed by the telescope description. The Golden Order has halted the stars, and that is actually a reference to Radan himself. He is a Golden Order member. Why did Radan do this? Well, the sword memorial at Redmain Castle suggests it was to save Celia in an event called the Star Scourge Conflict. Celia, of course, being the village of sorcery, somewhere that Radan himself holds close to his heart as he studied there, this gravitational magic that he becomes well known for. What was this conflict? Well, to me it suggests a couple of things. It implies the movement of the stars in one way or another would have resulted in the destruction of Celia. Perhaps he was foretold this by an astrologer. Or perhaps a creature like Estiel was heading its way. Or perhaps, more simply, much like what happens at the end of the Radan fight, possibly a star was just heading the way to the town of sorcery and was just going to impact upon it. Regardless, it looks like he was trying to stop the destruction of this town when he fettered the stars. And by doing this, he not only fettered the stars, but he fettered fate that is connected, that is linked inextricably to the stars. Fate is of course ultimately more than I suggested at the beginning when I quoted the American Scientific quote. It seems to be an actual force that is linked to control over one's actions and what destinies they are actively able to pursue. If the flow of stars is stopped, then those futures, those destinies, those lines of fate are stopped. We see this in two examples that I can think of. Firstly, we see this in the progression of Rani's quest. Her fate seems to be linked with renouncing her connection to the greater will and then bringing about the Age of Stars. Her agents, you and Blythe, are actually unable to advance her aims because you cannot reach the Eternal City of Nokron while her fate is arrested. 
Interestingly, when fate is released upon death of Radan, the path forward is physically opened by a falling star, so it seems that following the strands of fate can actually physically assist you. But also Rani seeks the Finger Slayer Blade, and the description of this blade reads as follows. The hidden treasure of the eternal city of Nokron, a blade said to have been born of a corpse. This blood-drenched fetish is proof of high treason committed by the eternal city and symbolises its downfall. Cannot be wielded by those without fate, but is said to be able to harm the greater will and its vassals. So not only does fate actually help Rani physically move forward on her path, but also metaphysically, as access and use of the blade would have been prohibited all the while that fate was arrested. The entire time that her fate is arrested, Rani is essentially frozen in time and unable to act to achieve her fate as cradled by the stars. Her fate has been disconnected from the stars, meaning she can no longer follow the strands of fate to her desired destiny. The age of stars cannot be achieved whilst fate is frozen in place. The idea that the Carrion Royal's fate and destiny was severed when fate was arrested is something reiterated by the preceptor robes which read as follows. Glintstone sorcerers are the descendants of astrologers, a fact that the Carrions remain aware of, even if their fate has long been severed from the stars. So as an aside, keep in mind that Glintstone sorcerers are the descendants of astrologers, as this is an important connecting thread between the subject matters of this video. As dictated by fate, Rani's dark path that leads to her slaying her fingers clearly is a fate-bound event that is linked to the stars, as Selen describes it, and this is one that Rani wishes to follow. And so to be able to achieve this destiny and follow the strands of fate once more to this conclusion, the movement of the stars must be resumed. What is clear is that the force known as fate can have a powerful influence over an individual's ability to act. We see this control more clearly through the actions of a nefarious individual who manipulates the power of fate, Preceptor Celibus. Let us first analyse what we know about the Preceptor. He is of course a Preceptor, and we can learn about this class from the Preceptor Big Hat, which reads, Large hat with the movement of the stars drawn inside the brim, worn by the magic Preceptors who served the Carrion Royals. Glintstone sorcerers are the descendants of astrologers, a fact that the Carrions remain aware of even if their fate has been long severed from the stars. The term preceptor means teacher, and to me they are most likely experts and teachers in astrology, given the fact that their robes and hats depict the movements of stellar bodies which we learn is of course related to fate. And we will later learn that Celibus's proclivities are tightly linked to the fate and the stars, so it is quite clear that he was once an astrologer himself. These teachers most likely tutored others in the art, and probably were the personal astrologers to the royal family. I think the fact that Radigan had their mouths symbolically sealed, as described by the Masks of Confidence, meant they did operate very closely with the royal family. Thus, it makes sense that Rani would have one by her side, a preceptor who is able to read her destiny and advise her on the matters of fate. Yet, Celibus uses his familiarity with stars and fate to more sinister ends by reviving an eternal city practice, the practice of puppetry. The starlight shards are the ingredient used by Celibus to create his puppet potions, and we know this because we fetch him an amber shard to craft a potion for Rani, and he takes the shards in exchange for new puppets. So with that in mind, let us read the starlight shards item description. An ephemeral sliver that gives off a pale blue glow what remains of a passing flash of starlight, a prized item that was once used in the Eternal City as an ingredient in intoxicating drafts. That of course being the intoxicating draft known as the Puppet Draft. It also confirms that this is an Eternal City practice, and this is further backed up by the Night Maiden and Swordmistress puppets which we find in Noxtella, and these read, An old puppet crafted in the Eternal City used to summon the spirits of a night maiden and sword mistress. These sisters, members of a cold-blooded race who wield flowing weapons, became puppets of their own volition. So we know that the Eternal City in some ways are the precursor to the Carrions in regards to their study and worship of the night skies. 
And so it makes sense that they too were able to manipulate the fates and create these puppets much as Celavis would later. In this case it seems members of Nox society actually volunteered for this process, showing they so fervently believe in the Age of Stars that they would sacrifice their own bodies. One thing I want to note at this stage is that the Nox and the Eternal City is evidently so closely associated with fate, the moon and the stars, and I do think they are important to the greater theme of the Age of Stars. However, I do want to keep this video kind of laser focused on the development of Glintstone Sorcery and the Stars and the Primeval Current, so they will not feature in this video beyond what I've already mentioned now. They are due their own video and will most likely be the subject of the next video, as I'm very interested in them. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let us continue. So what about fate? How does this puppet process work? And what does it have to do with our greater thesis on the stars? Well, let us look at another item description that lays bare how fate is the critical factor in this process. The Amber Starlight Shard and its description reads the following way. An ephemeral sliver that gives off a pale amber glow. If the stars command our fates, then amber-hued stars must command the fates of gods. Such is the belief that inspired the use of these shards to prepare a most special draft. As such, Selvis tries to make a puppet of Rani because, in theory, it has command over the fate of gods. So these puppet drafts abuse the connection to fate found within the stars, and by imbibing it, their fate becomes the will of someone else, the will of whoever prepared the draft. This is a clear manipulation of the fate that is found within the stars. By creating this draft, the creator can actually take command of someone's own fate by making them imbibe this potion, and I find it to be a fascinating perversion of the natural fate we find in the stars. But what it does make clear is that fate is the key ingredient in these drafts that take control over someone. It shows that fate can control the actions of an individual. When Radan arrested the movement of the stars, he halted Rani's ability to act in accordance with her destiny, and when manipulated, it gives the manipulator to control the puppet's fate, and therefore control their very actions. Speculation warning of this next little portion. This is immensely significant when we think about the Amber Shards. In usual FromSoft fashion, it actually doesn't make it clear whether this is actually a real idea, whether this Amber Starlight actually could control a god. Firstly, Rani never drinks it, so we never find out. And secondly, it says this is the belief that inspired the use of these shards. The belief, so it's not a proven fact. But what if it is true? What if there are special fates and special stars that have the influence over gods themselves? In fact, if you look at the Amber Starlight item itself, it looks very, very close to another thing we see in the game. I've always wondered what the Amber Blade or whatever that bisects and holds Marika within the Erd Tree. To me, it very well could be an Amber Starlight Shard. This is of course speculation, but what if she is being arrested using an Amber Starlight Shard? This is how the Great Will has in fact had her imprisoned. She cannot act because she is being manipulated by the fate of this Amber Shard, much as a puppet would be by an Amber Shard draft. That was just speculation, but I've always found the Amber Blade that bisects her very interesting, and I do think it looks closely like the Amber Starlight Shard. Speculation over, let's move on. Why is this a thing? Why is fate actually dictated by the stars? And how did fate actually affect anything? Why does it have power? Why is it an actual force within the world? Well, firstly we will learn that the stars very much are an actual force within the world. A force that actually contains life. Fate could be just a human term for understanding the power that is influenced by one of the many forces that operate in the lands between. Each of the outer gods influence the world in their own way. Fate could just be the power that these stars exude over the lands between. Does it have the will of an outer god connected to it? Possibly. My focus is primarily in regards to the stars, but I think that the Age of Stars ending show there is at least a power or a force behind the moon, the stars and the cosmos. And like we say later in this video we will explore certain aspects of the life that can be found within the stars. In short, fate is simply another force within the world that influences its agents and people within the worlds between without directly intervening itself. Consider the effect that fate actually has if it is allowed to run its full course. We see that A, it leads Renala to the moon, allowing her to become the full moon queen and in turn teach her daughter about the moon. And B, it will lead Rani to unleash the Age of Stars. There is an endgame, a motivation, or perhaps just a natural conclusion to fate it seems. There is a point to it, and it does just seem as if it is just one of the many influences and forces 
of outside powers and beings that are kind of inscrutable but obviously have some kind of goal to affect the lands between. To truly understand the stars and the role that they play in Elden Ring, it is essential to look at glintstone sorcery and the primeval current. As we discussed, astrology and glintstone magic are linked. They are both the study of the stars. And so it is to glintstone sorcery and the primeval current that we turn to now. When it comes to glintstone, the best place to start with is Selen, for she is a master of glintstone sorcery and it was her aim to study the deeper applications of Glintstone, and this eventually had her cast out from the Academy of Raya Lucaria. Glintstone, as we will learn, is definitively linked to the primeval current, a force that was viewed as exceptionally dangerous, as were the methods employed by those who study it. Selen makes it clear that she will tutor us in Glintstone sorcery primarily, and this is the primary medium that is used by the Raya Lucarian sorcerers to cast their spells. Indeed, glintstone does appear to be the main form of sorcery practiced by the scholars of Raya Lucaria, and I take this from the Lazuli Glintstone Crown, which reads as follows. Scholars of the Lazuli Conspectus study carrion sorceries, a heterodox pursuit that views the moon as equal to the stars. Indeed, it does seem that glintstone was the main founding sorcery of the Academy, in my opinion, as evidenced by the use of the word here heterodox, which essentially means contrary to orthodox. So, as a result, it would imply that putting glintstone sorcery on the same level of the moon was not the orthodox way, and the orthodox way was in fact that glintstone was the primary source of sorceries. The idea that glintstone sorcery is of course the orthodox practice of sorcery is backed up by the fact that the crowns of the scholars are adorned by glintstone, as well as the fact of the robes of the Raya Lucarian sorcerers which read, Those who dedicate themselves to the study of glintstones formed from a starry amber, receive this modest yet elegant deep blue garb, along with their vows of virtue and austerity. So most of the Raya Lucarian scholars actually do wear these blue robes, and interestingly it is the Lucarian ones that wear the kind of white dirty robes, so there is a difference, but the majority are ones that study glintstone. However, despite it being the main medium of Raya Lucarian magic, evidently it was the way in which it was utilised which defines the different schools of magic that are represented by all the different glintstone masks that are no doubt fashioned after the likeness of their founding fathers, as well as other groups of sorcerers such as the Crystal Cadre that is mentioned in the Crystal Burst spell. The presence of the debate parlour that is set up in two rows of seats facing each other implies that fierce debates and ideas would be exchanged between members of these schools and thoughts. Selim belongs to an extremist school of primeval sorcerers, a certain class of glintstone sorcerers that believe that glintstone isn't merely a sorcery, but a medium that can be used to open one's mind to the abyss. So what is glintstone itself? Why is such important place on it? Well, a few lessons in, Sela describes the glintstone as the following. Our art draws upon the powers embedded in glintstone. But what is the nature of such power? Glintstone is the amber of the cosmos. Golden Amber contains the remnants of ancient life and houses its vitality, while Glinstone contains residual life and thus the vitality of the stars. It should not be forgotten that Glinstone's sorcery is the study of the stars and the life therein, a fact lost on most sorcerers these days. To help us comprehend the nature of this material, she compares it to Amber, and of course this amber is most likely the amber of the earth tree as described in various talismans such as the viridian amber medallion which reads as follows a medallion with a viridian amber inlaid the earth tree's old sap becomes amber treasured as the most precious jewels in the age of godfrey the first elden lord a primordial life energy resides inside as selen says the amber preserves ancient life most likely life from the primordial crucible given the word primordial is used in the aforementioned amber medallion. The interesting thing here, firstly, is that it is compared to essentially the amber of the earth tree. The earth tree and the stars are often seen as opposing yet similar forces, and this is why it is analogous to it, for while there is amber for the earth tree, there is glintstone from the stars, and it is interesting because you can track back these analogies to different aspects of both forces. Selen curiously says that analogous to this, glintstone contains residual life and thus contains the life of the stars. 
The primordial life contained within the amber grants the bearer a modicum of its powers through improved vitality and fitness. And likewise, glintstone can be used to harness the residual life of the stars to extraordinary results, resulting in the power that we see in glintstone sorcery. So glintstone, while not containing the actual stars themselves, seems to contain their residual essence or an imprint of their life energy that can be harnessed to great effect. Selen expands upon this in her final dialogue of her quest, where she says, Do you recall what once I told you? That glimstone is the amber of the cosmos, and sorcery is the study of the stars and the life therein. So glintstone, having the residual energy of the stars, is therefore the study of the life contained within the stars because it contains an imprint of that life. So how is this actual material formed? Amber is formed from the sap of the earth tree as we saw from the amber medallion and essentially it coalesces from the runoff as direct from the tree itself. In this way glintstone is similar in that it is formed from the runoff of the stars and we learn about the materials formation within the lands between from the founding reign of stars which reads as follows. The eldest primeval sorcery said to have been discovered by an ancient astrologer, a sorcery of legendary status, summons a dark cloud of stars overhead. Shortly after, the cloud will release a violent deluge of star rain. This sorcery can be cast in motion. Thought to be the founding glintstone sorcery, the glimpse of the primeval current that the astrologer saw became real, and the star's amber rained down upon this land. So this spell itself is a reflection of the beginning of glintstone sorcery and the oldest of the primeval sorceries itself again highlighting this intrinsic link between the glintstone and its primeval current. Let's now walk through the important event that this item description details. An astrologer, someone we know studies the threads of fate within the stars, somehow glimpsed at the primeval current. This glimpse of what he saw, the glimpse of the primeval current that the astrologer saw, became real, and then the glintstone rained down upon the mortal realm. The astrologer looked into the primeval void, the primeval abyss of the stars itself, and it became real, manifesting the reign of the stars. Let's look upon the spell itself. It seems to open a cloud of nebulous energy and releases a downpour of star rain. So what the astrologer must have glimpsed when he looked into the primeval current was this dark nebula. And we will discuss near the end of this video what staring into the primeval current seems to actually be. But what is the vitality of the stars? What residual life does the glintstone contain? Well, we do actually meet a star in-game, and this is Astille, also known as Natural Born of the Void, or Stars of Darkness. Astille's remembrance reads, Remembrance of Astille, Natural Born of the Void, a malformed star born in the flightless void far away, once destroyed an eternal city, and took away their sky. A falling star of ill omen. So Astille is referred to as a malformed star, and again a star of ill omen, cementing the fact that Astille is actually a star, but an atypical one given the use of the word malformed, meaning that we can assume that the other stars within the void are actually far different from Astille and maybe not even as alive as he looks. But nonetheless, he is a star, and this is of course reinforced by the bastard star item description which confirms that Astille is a star due to the fact this item is made from star debris of Astille's body. Is it possible that the residual life contained within the glintstone is like that of Astille and his more regular star kin? I believe so, and so it makes therefore easier to understand the nature of the life energy that we find preserved within the glintstone, the amber of the cosmos. There is actually life within the stars, and it also harkens back to what we talked about fate. Now that we understand there is actually life and consciousness and thought within the stars, it makes it easier to understand why fate could be used to control pawns within the lands between. As Selin said, the glintstone sorcery is a study of the stars, and the very use of that sorcery is an act of unlocking the secrets held within the glintstone, and thus the stars. So to me, the toothless peasantry peddled by the carrion royals that she talks about must be the more mundane view that glintstone sorcery is just another form of magic that can be used in equal balance with that of the moon, rather than seeing glintstone as a way to unlock the secrets of the abyss that Selen sees it as. I think the ultimate aim of the primeval sorcerers, of which Selen is of course one, is to ascend to starhood, and I think that her studies have already been successful to a degree. 
So to help illustrate this fact, I want to refer back to the Rylicarian Sorcerer robes as it mentions something interesting. It mentions extended life. I believe that their close proximity to Glintstone, and this is just speculation of course, would have had an effect on the body, much like handling a radioactive material, and as such they are affected by the Glintstone and therefore the cosmos in a way. And to me this is what we see when we talk about Selen's primal Glintstone. Its description tells us that this is in essence her soul, and it is transferable. I speculate that through her studies, she has transformed her own soul, so that it too is a sort of amber, where the residual life of Selen is contained within this glintstone. Where the regular glintstone holds the life of stars, her primal glintstone holds her very soul, and thus she is effectively immortal while this primal glintstone exists. Indeed, I assume that Azure and Lusat have done something similar, as we can see their body is almost completely glintstone at this stage. Everything the primeval sorcerers do seems to be a step in making themselves closer to the stars. Lusat and Azure, and now as we can see, Zelen, augment their bodies with glintstone, making themselves closer to the stars that the glintstone contains. This type of scholarship and thinking has clearly been driven out by the Carrion royal family and the academy in general, as we can see from the exile of Lusat, Azure and Selen, all of the primeval sorcerers driven out. Despite them all actually being prestigious sorcerers at one time or another, Azure and Lusat both wear Grandmaster robes suggesting they once held positions of great authority within the academy, and Selen seems to have been held in a similar regard, as we see her in paintings alongside the likes of Renala throughout the academy. And indeed Thops knows that she is an illustrious and well-known student, one of the greatest of Raya Lucaria. We earn the trust of the Graven Witch by coming into contact with her old mentor, primeval sorcerer Azure. Azure appears to us almost catatonic, and yet he still seems to react to our presence enough to award us with Comet Azure, a primeval sorcery. And the sorcery's description gives us a really clear insight into what this primeval current is, and what primeval sorcery is all about. But let us return to that in a moment. Regardless, despite the bizarre and alien nature of our interaction with Azure, Selen is now willing to trust us as it seems that Azure has passed judgement on us and found us reliable. Selen then unveils the true nature of primeval sorcery and the reason of her study of glintstone. So it firstly gives us a little history lesson on primeval and glintstone sorcery. If you recall, I was exiled from the Academy of Rhea Lucaria. It was for attempting to restore the primeval current of glintstone sorcery. The toothless pedantry peddled by the Carian royal family can rot for all I care. I want glintstone sorceries that open our minds, unbound by terrestrial taboos. No matter what we give in return. Master Lusat is another founding glintstone sorcerer. And like Master Azure, he was banished from the Academy. Now he languishes in prison somewhere. My apprentice, can you find Master Lusat? With this glintstone key, you should be able to cross the boundary that encloses him. I need him to restore the primeval current of glintstone sorcery. He's nigh a child of the stars, such is his body now. Azure, and as we later learned Lusat, were founding glintstone sorcerers, meaning that they were among the first who saw glintstone as a medium of sorcery. And while they would pursue it to its deepest recesses of study, the Carrion royal family would promote a toothless and reductive school of this magic based on their findings. She also tells us that the ultimate aim of the primeval school of sorcery is to restore the primeval current of glintstone and somehow open our minds beyond terrestrial taboos. We can see this opening of the mind when we visit Lusa and Azure. These are the primeval sorcerers who have taken their studies into glintstone to the next level. We see that their bodies are covered and augmented with glintstone. It is more than just an adornment, as we learn from the description of Azure's crown, which reads, Crown of Azure, primeval current sorcerer, set with a prominent blue-green glintstone. This crown replaced Azure's brain and skull altogether, and now, removed from his body, it is all but dead. What power remains within raises the potency of Azure's primeval current sorceries. We also find that the description for Lusat's crown is more or less the same, and so let us examine the ramifications of this piece of lore. Lusat and Azure have essentially replaced their brains with glintstone, meaning their mind is literally glintstone and therefore connected to the vitality of the stars. One cannot help recall Selen's statement about opening our mind unbound by terrestrial taboos. I think it is fair to say that whatever Lusat and Azure are experiencing within their glintstone minds 
are something far beyond our mortal perceptions, and it in turn explains the alien interactions that we have with them both. God knows how they perceived our arrival, and perhaps they did not perceive us in the mundane sense that a human would sense. Rather, perhaps the lines of fate or the lines of the stars revealed to them that this was the moment to impart their sorcery. It is of course just speculation, but one can't find these interactions to be rather curious when in fact we learn that their minds are no longer actually brains, but in fact made entirely of glintstone. One can't help but wonder what they see, think and feel on a daily basis. Indeed, Selin even comments on Master Lusat's form. Indeed, in her final dialogue she refers to herself and followers as fallen children of the stars, and that with honing the primeval current they can beam with brilliance once again. So it is clear to me that these primeval sorcerers yearn to connect to the stars, and even become one of the stars themselves. And to this end Lusat and Azur have replaced most of their bodies with a material connected to the stars themselves. They are children of the stars. Selin is now the continuation of the primeval sorcerer line. A self-professed child of the stars, she doesn't see herself as someone on the mortal plane who should be confined by terrestrial taboos, as she calls it in our initial conversation with her about Glintstone and the primeval current. Her expulsion and title, The Graven Witched, is actually well earned, but it can be quite easily missed by the player what she has actually done wrong. I admit on my first playthrough, I would believe that she was being persecuted merely for her beliefs, beliefs that weren't in line for those of the royal family. Yet Jaren, a witch hunter of the royal family, lays a heavy charge at her door. She was known as the Graven Witch. Obsessed by the primeval current, countless sorcerers fell to her hand. The most dangerous mage in the entire history of Rhea Lucaria's academy. He calls her the most dangerous sorcerer in all of Rhea Lucarian history, and that she has a body count essentially. She is the Graven Witch. Graven meaning an engraven in stone and it directly relates to the Graven School or Graven Mass, which are the odd glintstone multi-head enemies that we find in the lands between. Let's not beat around the bush any longer and find out what these things are. We learn the truth from the Graven School Talisman, which reads as follows. A talisman depicting a school of Graven Mages, the Nightmare of the Academy. The primeval current is a forbidden tradition of glintstone sorcery. To those who cleave to its teachings, the act of collecting sorcerers to fashion them into the seeds of stars is but another path of scientific inquiry. So the horror of these enemies is fully revealed. In their obsession with reactivating the primeval current and becoming stars themselves, they have committed horrific human experimentation. Remember Selin considers earthly taboos as meaningless. As a description of the talisman reads, this is just research to them, too important to be confined by human morality which they no longer really see themselves as part of humanity. We learn further from the Graven Mass Talisman that the Graven Mass was the first of the Graven Schools and it continued to haunt the Academy. And indeed, we do find the Graven Mass within the Academy, the first attempt at a Graven School. It is in what looks to be a sealed off and guarded room that is guarded by a page of the Academy. It is a room filled with crystals and the Graven Mass at its centre. Interestingly, it is also where we find the staff of Azure himself. This makes sense because Azure is a founding glintstone sorcerer and one of the first primeval sorcerers. It is most likely that it was he who pioneered this method of graven schools. If I am allowed to speculate with the environmental storytelling and the item that we find here, I would suggest that glintstone was used as the power source to complete such a ritual and, given Azure's staff's present, it was most likely that he oversaw this first experiment and this was the action that will have seen him expelled from the Academy's gates. Returning to the talisman, it says that it continues to haunt the Academy. Evidently this was a failed experiment, as the corpse of this tortured being stares at us with dead eyes. It lies there limply, as a corpse of a horrific, abominable experiment. No doubt scared of the potential risk for harm, or accident, the Academy has just sealed off this chamber, rather than try and clear it out. A stark monument to the ambitions of Azure and the primeval sorcerers. We can see that there is evidently some method to the madness. Glintstone is connected to the stars, and so attempting to make a living star from its power, as if it is a catalyst or a seed for a new star, so they can all ascend together as one amalgous star, does make sense in a way given that Glintstone is connected to the stars. Indeed, 
In the Graven Mass lab, we can see star stuff in the air, as if the pure concentration of glintstone magic is opening some kind of connection to the stars. This is also interesting if we look at it in conjunction with something that we've seen Selin say previously. She was banished for attempting to restore the primeval current of glintstone sorcery. This suggests that the primeval current has been active already, and indeed if we look at the primeval sorceries of Azure and Lusa, then it seems that both were able to touch and activate its power in some way. It is possible that upon the creation of this graven mass, Azure did connect to the primeval current as described in Comet Azure, and we could speculate that this is actually when he experienced what is described in Comet Azure's item description. Having looked at these beings, Selin's title of Graven Witch makes sense now. As the Graven Witch, she clearly was notorious for forging new Graven schools in an attempt to forge a starseed and connect to the primeval current. Selin's final fate makes it clear that these are, at least, semi-conscious sorcerers forged together with glintstone masks, making sorcerer's powers and glintstones as the main ingredients for this being. Thops confirms that she was in fact accused of abusing and mistreating other sorcerers. Selin was well known. The most promising sorceress in the history of the Academy. I followed her at school. But there may as well have been an ocean between us. But Selin was expelled from the Academy. Accused of unthinkable treatment of certain sorcerers, under the name of the Graven Witch. I still don't believe the accusations. The illustrious Selen would never do such things. Interestingly, her connection to the Graven Schools is cemented by the presence of her painting in the room with the Graven Mass, the sole painting of any sorcerer in the entire room. Yet we can clearly see that the Graven Schools have not worked, and instead of being stars, they are horrific abominations spewing uncontrollable magics. Jern's accusations now take on a new sinister hue, and as much as Selin may treat us with kindness as her pupil, it is clear that she views much of traditional morality as a hindrance. Yet what is the purpose of these Graven Mask schools? Well, the talismans make it clear that they are meant to be star seeds, so I believe that the intention behind these Graven Masks is that they will forge and become a new star. This clearly is the aim of Selin herself, as she states at their final dialogue that she and her followers are children of the stars. Do you see this? The Queen of Caria is no more. With the bodies of Masters Azure and Lusat returned, the Academy can hone the primeval current, so that we, fallen children of the stars, shall beam with brilliance once again. This is the ultimate and pitiful fate of Selin and her mentors. Selin tells us, upon her victory, that the bodies of Lusat and Azure have been returned to the Academy, and so the primeval current can be reached again. Yet where are they? We never actually see them. Indeed, we see that Lusat and Azure are gone from their original locations, and ominously, their crowns are left behind. Would you so easily leave your brain and skull behind? After Selin's triumph, if we rest, or return to the area later, we find that she is absent, and the full moon queen is restored. Selin is apparently nowhere to be seen, at first, and this is until we turn to the side and notice a graven school, and one of the faces on this graven school stands out from the rest, a witch's glintstone mask at the top right of the graven school. And upon talking to this thing, we can confirm that what is ever left of Selin is now a constituent part of the graven school. Uh, my... Before I fully understood what the Graven Schools were, I believed Renala had a hand in Selin's fate here, and indeed given Renala's ability to rebirth, it is possible that she still rebirths Selin and her followers in a type of fitting and ironic punishment. But in my opinion, given what we actually know about Selin, I think it is Selin that did this to herself. She is the Graven Witch after all, with someone who has the knowledge to produce such abominations. She has told us her plan all along to restore the primeval current and ascend to starhood. And in fact, one of the last things that she says before we don't see her anymore in her human form is that she and her followers will once again beam with brilliance. And I believe that she then attempted to form herself into a graven school. She needed Lusat and Azure for this to restore the primeval current. Why did she need them? We never actually see why she needs them after us hunting them down for her. My conclusion? She believed that with sorcerers such as Lusat and Azure, people that were essentially star children, that this graven school would finally be a success and she and the others that formed this seed alongside Azure and Lusat 
would ascend to the stars. So I believe that Lusat, Azur and Selin are all making up part of this Graven School. Yet from her pained dialogue as the Graven School, we can see that she finally understands the futility of this ridiculous practice. And it is ironic that she'll be forced to exist this way, with the primeval current far out of reach. Let us now speak on Selin's shadow throughout her quest, Jaren. Why is Jaren hunting Selin? What are his real motivations? Well, to me, it is a result of Selin's own motivations. She sees the Carrions as an obstacle to achieving her ultimate aim. She cares not for the toothless pedantry peddled by the Carrion royal family. And in fact, at the end of her quest, she does usurp the Carrion royal family. So it makes sense that Jaren, as someone who serves the Carrion royal family, would want to stop Selin. Jaren is, in fact, the agent of the Carrion royal family. And we do learn this from his armor set, in case you're unsure as to why I'm saying that. As I highlighted via the Lazuli Glintstone mask, Carrion schools of thought place the moon on equal footing with Glintstone, and this very idea must have infuriated primeval sorcerers such as Selin, who saw the Glintstone as the source of everything important, the source of the primeval current, the most important thing to Selin. And so we come to the crux of the entire video. What is the primeval current? Warning, what follows is a lot of my own speculation and deduction but I do believe it leads to a logical and satisfying conclusion. I believe that Selin gave us the answer in some of her dialogue right near the beginning of her quest. She says she wishes to restore the primeval current of Glintstone. The primeval current is something that is connected to the Glintstone itself. And in tandem with the primeval sorceries, the answer to me is this. The primeval current is a current of energy that flows through and can be harnessed and accessed through Glintstone and the current connects to the primordial birthplace of the stars, the void. The aim of the primeval sorcerers, in my mind, is to connect with the primeval current, access this primordial birthing place of the stars, and become stars themselves. Some of the primeval sorceries, for me, are the best evidence for this hypothesis. Let us look at the Stars of Ruin item description, which reads, When Lusat glimpsed into primeval current, he beheld the final moments of a great star cluster, and upon seeing it, he too was broken. So looking into the current is being able to look beyond our terrestrial lands and into the void of the stars themselves. It is a current that allows one to connect to this far off void abyss where stars exist, leading one to witness extraordinary stellar events like Lusat did in this instance. When Lusat beheld the primeval current, he witnessed the death of an entire group of stars an event so incomprehensible, beautiful, terrifying, and mind-blowing for a human to witness that he was left broken. Now let us look at the Comet Azura's description, which reads, Legendary sorcery devised by Azura, primeval sorcerer, fires a tremendous comet in a torrent akin to the distant starry expanse, the place said to be the origin of Glintstone. When Azura glimpsed into the primeval current, he saw darkness. He was left both bewitched and fearful of the abyss. So the first thing of relevant is that it says, Torrent, akin to the dusty starry expanse. The place said to be the origin of Glintstone, the origin of the stars themselves. Looking at the spell, it does look like a torrent, a current. And when I first heard the word primeval current, I did imagine it to be a stream of metaphysical energy that doesn't necessarily exist in one set place or time. It is something that connects to where the stars are formed. And indeed the wording of this spell implies that it is a facsimile of the current itself, a primeval torrent of energy that can be accessed through the glintstone. And again, by reaching and looking into this metaphysical energy source through glintstone, Azura was able to glimpse the birthplace of the stars, the distant abyss. So that leads us on to the next point of interest, is that we quite often get reference to the primeval current being associated with a darkness or abyss. As I've said, when you look into the lore connected to the primeval current, it becomes patently clear that this energy source connects to the void in which stars are formed. And by peering into it, by reaching into it, by connecting to it, the primeval source may get a glimpse of that deep dark of the void that is something so beyond and incomprehensible to the human world. And in this void, they can witness the death and birth of stars. This too is reflected by the founding reign of stars that we looked at earlier, whereby connecting to the primeval current, the mentioned astrologer opened a rift to the abyss, and from that abyss fell the glintstone. One thing that may help to illustrate and add to this discussion is the original Japanese of the founding reign of stars, and how it more clearly connects in Japanese to a steel and the void in general. Once again, like I did in my last video, I rely on my fellow content creator, 
last protagonist, who was kind enough to translate the following item descriptions for me. Their channel covers Elden Ring in depth, looking at lore, translation and NPC triggers, and I highly recommend that you check them out, and thank you again to last protagonist. When I asked protagonist to review the founding Reign of Stars item description, they made it clear that while it is a decent translation, it does miss out a linguistic link to the word darkness, and that this item description says something along the lines of call a nebula of darkness in the sky. Adding to this, he claims that the same word for darkness is quite often used in association with Astiel, who most closely translates to spawn of darkness rather than natural born of the void. Furthermore, in line with this idea of darkness, they translated Astiel's remembrance as the following. Remembrance of the spawn of darkness. In the distant past, a star malformed was born in the lightless darkness. It destroyed the Eternal City long ago. It's a malevolent comet that stole the sky from them. Again, big thanks to Last Protagonist. This simply isn't something I can look at myself, and I will link their channel below. So again, this reinforces the idea that there is an abyss or void that is connected to the birthplace of the stars. Darkness is clearly associated with beings such as Astiel, given we can make waves of darkness ash of war from Astiel's remembrance. More importantly, it creates a linguistic link between the primeval current and Astiel, given that it is linked to Reign of Founding Stars, which is of course one of the primeval sorceries, and to Astiel, both using the term darkness quite clearly in their descriptions. This will reiterate what I have said already. The primeval current links to the source of the stars, a place of darkness, a void, an abyss that birthed Astiel much as it birthed the founding reign of stars, the source of all glintstone. The primeval current is the energy source that taps into this primordial birthing place of the stars, and by channeling the power of glintstone, one can connect to the primeval current and thus reach into the void where stars themselves are gestated. Therefore, the aims of the primeval sorcerers are not completely insane, are they? By touching the source, and energy of the primeval stars, surely they could become a star themselves, couldn't they? One final note I will end on is whilst it makes it clear that the primeval current is connected to this primordial birthing of the stars, I think we aren't meant to fully comprehend what it is. The whole point of cosmic horror, as is described in Bloodborne and in this game, is that you aren't meant to fully understand it. The primeval sorcerers don't fully understand it. We learn that Lo Sat, his mind is blown by what he sees when he taps into the primeval current. But what is important to remember is that primeval current is something that can be channeled through glintstone sorcery, and through channeling and reaching into the primeval current, we can view a place that is far removed from the terrestrial bounds of our earth, a place in which the stars themselves are formed and born. So thanks guys, that is my lore video on the primeval current, glintstone sorcery, and fate. There is more to be said about stars, and I do want to look at this more when I do my Nox and Eternal City video, which is looking like it'll be my next video now that I've really got my teeth into understanding Glintstone, stars, and the cosmos. So yeah, essentially when I do my Nox and Eternal City, we'll answer some of the questions that are, of course, still lingering from this video, but I do feel like this gives the best kind of look at what we can understand the primeval current to be to the extent that we can. As I said at the end there, I don't think we're meant to fully comprehend exactly what it is only that it is an incomprehensible cosmic force that connects to the primordial source of the stars themselves. If you like this video, please give it a like and subscribe to the channel. As you can see, I clearly do Elden Ring lore and I will continue to do so. Let me know your thoughts on glintstone sorcery, the cosmos, the void, the stars, the fates in the comments below. But until next time, guys, I will see you in the deep void of space. Take care.